The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the hostess for today's podcast. I'm actually the hostess for every podcast we do right now. Anyhow, um, we are into our fourth year. Because I've had to change around the order of some of the podcasts, I'm not going to give you an episode number. I hope that's okay with you. Um, also, I do want to uh, I want to make a point here. We record these uh, podcast interviews a good four weeks in advance of when they air. Sometimes we will move them up if the topic is particularly timely, um, but pretty much we try and stay about four weeks ahead on our recordings. So that means that today's episode um, is actually being recorded uh, on the 14th of April, which means that we are smack dab in the middle of the COVID-19 situation and quarantine and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I do want to... Um, point out that when the brouhaha for the COVID-19 virus dies down, there will still be addiction. It's still going to be a problem. And it is something that has to continue to be addressed. I, as annoyed as I get with all of the um, brouhaha, that's how I would describe it, I wish that there were as much attention being put on the addiction problem as there is on the coronavirus. Um, addiction kills way more people than are ever going to be killed by the coronavirus anywhere. And it is, it's just a much bigger problem. It really is. Even though right now the thing that's in front of everybody's faces is COVID-19. Hopefully, by the time this podcast airs, which will be in May of 2020, businesses will be reopening and we can hug our loved ones again without worrying about either um, spreading the disease from us to them or from them to us. All right. So enough about the current situation. The um, We do have an interview today, and that interview is... Um, with Tim Ryan. And we have interviewed Tim Ryan before. He, um, we had him on the podcast when we were doing audio only, and we thought it would be good to have him back to do a video. And he, um, he agreed to do that. I'll tell you just a little bit about him. Uh, drugs stole more than half Tim's life, but he has dedicated every waking minute since walking out of prison to dealing hope rather than dope. He deals hope to addicts and their families. Um, based on the story, and I listened to his audio podcast again before recording today, he, um, it's amazing that he's alive. And obviously, God had um, more plans for him. Uh, that God wanted him to do some good in the world, and he's definitely doing that. He has made and lost millions. He is the founder of a Man in Recovery Foundation, and he is a motivational speaker. His mission is to help one addict at a time 
transform their lives from dope to hope. And that is also the name of his book, From Dope to Hope. Tim has been a featured thought leader in numerous national media, including USA Today, Newsweek, and the Steve Harvey Show with Dr. Drew, and dozens of nationally syndicated radio shows. He was an invited guest by the United States President to the 2016 State of the Union Address. Let's get the story and where he's at now from Tim Ryan. Just want to apologize for some sound distortions in this interview. I suspect there was a bad Wi-Fi connection. Anyhow, I apologize in advance. Tim, thank you for telling your story again on our podcast. I appreciate you being willing to do that because I already know a little bit about your story and I know how compelling it is. So thank you. I am glad to be here. And uh, in these times, it's... uh doing a lot of podcasts and getting the message out and just trying to give people a little bit of hope. You know, that's all you can do. Yep. And I, I'm, I want to get into your story, but I made the point before, um, before I started interviewing you today that this podcast won't go up until, um, in May, but it's being recorded on the 14th of April, 2020. And we are right in the middle of the COVID-19 thing. And, you know, when it goes away, we still have an addiction epidemic. We have a major addiction epidemic, and it's still going on right now. And I think it's actually getting worse because all these people are cooped up at home. Alcohol sales are through the roof. And you take the person that might, I hate the word functional alcoholic, because you take away the word functional, they're still an alcoholic. But you have people that are at home now working And guess what? They're starting to have a drink at 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning, noon. They're drinking throughout the day. They're drinking more. Whether this ends in a month, two months, three months, the amount of people just with alcohol that are going to be seeking help is going to be through the roof. Yep. Yep. And I'm sorry, more people, I may get disagreed with, but more people die from the addiction epidemic on a regular basis than will ever die from the coronavirus. All day long. I mean, what people don't realize, we're losing about 70,000 people a year, about 200 people a day just from opiates. Then we're losing another 88, 90,000 just from alcoholism. Um, then you're forgetting benzos and everything else. You know, we're losing four or 500 people a day. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It is crazy. But I digress a little bit. I wanted to um, have you tell your story because you have a compelling story. How did you get started on drugs, Tim? You know, it's nobody's ever asked me that question. How did I get started on drugs? I can remember going to Canada with my dad and his buddies, and we were way up in the boundary waters, and I was probably eight or 10. And they brought up beer and Shemino whiskey. And one of my dad's buddies uh, took me out in his boat and let me have a beer. And I liked what alcohol did, but it didn't really hit me until I was about 14. I grew up in the northern suburbs of Illinois, a town called Crystal Lake. I was on the lake, and my best friend was a senior in high school. I was a freshman. We water skied together, but the drinking age in Wisconsin was still 18, so it was a half hour away. And Randy, uh, we're both six one, blonde hair, blue eyes, so I used his ID. We'd go up to Lake Geneva every weekend drinking. But when I first drank, 
I like what alcohol did to me. I didn't have, I drank for the effect. Um, I probably tried a little pot. I didn't like it, but I can remember I was 15 years old. I was with my buddy, Pat and Brian. We're at this guy, Jim's house. He's now dead from a cocaine overdose. We were sophomores in high school and Brian's older brother was there. He was a senior and some kids out of high school. And they asked us each to put in $5. And Brian, Pat, myself, and uh, his older brother, we split one quarter gram of cocaine. We each did one line. I fell in love with cocaine immediately. We were sleeping at Pat's house that night. Brian and Pat left. I said, I'll be there in a little bit. I went right up to his brother, Joel. I said, do you have any more? He said, I have a half gram. I'll split it with you. You owe me 25 bucks on Friday. And that was it, game on. That was the first time I really did a drug. In the rest of my high school, I didn't do well in school. School bored me. So I got on the work program. I'd be out of school at 10, 30, 11. I'd go home. I'd water ski all afternoon. I ran a pizza restaurant. I'd be at the pizza shop at 4 o'clock and do that till 10, 11. But every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it was drinking and doing drugs. And that was my whole high school. And then I went down to college in Louisiana. I went down there for a few different reasons. They had open admissions because I had a 1.4 grade average and I received an 11 on the ACT five times. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Um, it was three to one girl to guys. You could hunt and fish. Best intercollegiate water ski team in the country and the drinking age was 18. So Monroe, Louisiana sounded like a brilliant idea. And my mom and I flew down and I could not wait for her to get on the plane to go back so I could get to the liquor store. And, you know, college to me was a party. I rarely went to class. I got into hallucinogenics, acid, magic, mushrooms, ecstasy. Um, we started dealing ecstasy because ecstasy was legal in the state of Texas up till 1985. They sold it in bars. Wow. Yeah. How can um, that be? How could it be legal? You got me, but it was Pandora's box for us because they made it illegal, but there was a lot of quantities of pharmaceutical grade ecstasy. So we, every Friday, would either drive to Dallas or Houston, Texas, or Vicksburg, Mississippi to pick up the money, and we would go buy 5,000 hits for a, bu a buck a piece. Uh, we'd come back and sell them for 10, 15 bucks, and we're making a lot of money, but that allotted me the opportunity just to do more drugs. You know, the water ski team, I never got on. I was a liability. I really never went to class and eventually dropped out of college, came back to Northern Illinois, did some odd jobs, got into more cocaine, started hanging out with this guy, Roger, who was 20 years older than me, and Roger had the cocaine hookup, we would go to Chicago every day and we would show up at the noon mass on the north side of Chicago. We'd kneel down at the pew and a Colombian lady would hand us two ounces of coke in the church. Oh my God. We would come back, we would sell an ounce and Roger and I uh, would smoke the other ounce. I got into freebase and cocaine and my life spun out of control very quickly. I can remember my mom had a company called Market Day, which was a, a nationwide food co-op, and she had this cash box, and I would take money from there, but I remember stealing checks, and I went to my buddy's gas station to cash them, and he called my mother, and I thanked my buddy Rick for doing this and said, you do know your son Tim has a cocaine problem, and she said, what are you talking about? 
said, Mrs. Ryan, he has another $400 market day check he's trying to cash at my gas station. So the cat was out of the bag. And the crazy thing was, a week prior, I had drove to a treatment center called Parkside Lodge in Northern Illinois. I was trying to check myself in. They were trying to run my dad's insurance. I sat in a group and I had about $1,000 in my pocket. And I said, yeah, you know, treatment's not for me. So I left a week later, I ended up checking into that treatment center. Um, it was the end of January of 1990. And when I went into treatment, I was 21 years old. I turned 21 in September. <clears throat> I went into treatment with the thought pattern, I just want to quit doing drugs and I want to figure out how to drink like a normal person. Because I thought it was the drugs causing the problem, not alcohol. I like treatment. I went through the motions. Um, I really don't remember much of it, but I do remember a guy coming in and speaking. It was February 2nd in 1990. And I remember that because it was my parents' wedding anniversary. And this guy shared his story. And when he was done, there was 38 of us as clients and he looked at all 38 of us and said, one of you'll be sober in a year and a third of you'll be dead. And right away I put up my hand. I said, excuse me, sir. He said, listen to me, kid. One of you will be sober in a year and a third of you will be dead. And I said, what do I do? He said, don't drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps. And if I back up, when I went into treatment, you're in detox, which was in the same building for about three days, and they had people coming in doing H&I, and this guy, Pat, shows up. What's H&I? Uh, hospitals and institutions to bring 12-step meetings into the jails or treatment centers, things along those lines. Okay. And this guy, Pat, comes in and starts talking recovery, and I looked at him. I said, what are you doing here? We grew up together, and we drank a lot together, and he said, Tim, I've been sober two and a half years. And I'm like, hold on, this guy's sober. But it didn't click. And, you know, I got out of treatment and my dad sat me down and he said, Tim, while you were in treatment, your mother and I got some help. I don't know if you've heard of that cult called Al-Anon, but they got to my mom and dad. And uh, these famous words come out of my dad's mouth. He said, look, Tim, I, I learned I didn't cause your disease. I can't cure it and I can't control it. And he said, I'm going to add something else. I'm not going to contribute to it either. So the day you start drinking or doing drugs, you can pack your stuff and you're out of the house. So I went to meetings. I started an asphalt seal coating business. My buddy and I ran a barefoot water ski school and I started competing in water skiing and life was good, but I never got a sponsor. I never worked the steps. I'm the guy that thought I could get sober through osmosis. Um, I injured my back at the Midwest Regionals at a, a barefoot water ski tournament, and I just won Illinois State, Wisconsin State, Mich uh, Michigan State. I slotted to win the Nationals, and I blew out three discs in my lower back, and Dr. Wu introduced me to Vicodin oh, and said, okay. here, you're supposed to walk like a monkey. And I really didn't like the opiate pills in early 90s, so I went back to smoking weed. Two days after smoking weed, I went back to drinking as soon as I started drinking, I went right back to doing cocaine and Pandora's box was opened. <clears throat> I lost my businesses. My partner with the water ski school said, Tim, I'm taking it to South Florida. You're not coming with your liability. Um, so I packed up and I moved to Austin, Texas. Uh, I figured I'll get away from all my problems. But there's a little saying, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> and uh, moved down there with a buddy of mine. And three weeks in, I wanted to get high. And I 
flipped on the news and saw somebody was shot on 13th Street. So I hopped on my motorcycle and I went right to 13th Street because I know if they're shooting people, they're selling drugs. That's the way my mind thinks. And I got back into buying crack cocaine and pulled some credit card fraud on my friend and he found out and had me arrested and I got to spend a week in the Travis County Jail and my MO was when I get out, go back to meetings. Going back to meetings was my safe place. And I met some guys marketing cable television door to door that were all sober and we traveled the country. And a year later, I started my own company in Buffalo, New York. And I shacked up with a lady 10 years older than me. And within six months, <clears throat> I had the third largest cable marketing company in the country. I made my first million at 22 years old. I have to stop you because here's the thing you said, because you had a one point, whatever grade average right. that you're not the sharpest tool in the shed. I would tend to disagree with you. If yeah. You, no, you it's are at 22. Okay. You got some when smarts. It, when it comes to book smarts, you know, I, I, I just, I process things differently. You know, at 51, I cannot tell you what a verb, adjective, pronoun is, conjunctive sentence. And I could care less. Who cares? Yeah. But I am, I'm very street smart. And I'm very, business smart. Yes. And my problem was, though, I had this delusion in my mind, while I make money, I can drink and use like a normal person. So, I mean, we were making twenty five, thirty thousand $30,000 a week profit. <clears throat> and I met a guy, I called him prime time. I would give him $20,000 a month cash and say, bring me an ounce of cocaine every day. And he did. And I thought he was my friend. And Things just got so out of control. Um, I buried that business. It was very um, tumultuous. It was just a bad situation. I lose everything. I come back to Chicago. I'm $80,000 in debt to the IRS. And what do I do? I go back to meetings and I meet a guy, Bob. And Bob has me come interview for a job. And I walk into his basement. <clears throat> And he's got two desks set up and he's wearing a suit. And I'm like, who the hell wears a suit to go to work in your own house? <laughs> but what I noticed, <clears throat> I'm sorry, was on Bob's desk, he had a, bo a book called A New Pair of Glasses. It's wrote by Chuck C. It's a recovery-related book. So I said, this guy's sober. So we're talking and he tells me he's a data processing recruiter, better known as a head hunter and all this money I can make. And I said, this is great. I'll take the job. He said, I never said I was hiring you. And I sat back and I said, Bob, are you sober? He said, yeah, I'm seven years sober. Why are you? I said, I'm two years sober. He said, you're hired. I wasn't two days sober. <laughs> <clears throat> but I could quote the big book. I could talk recovery. And, and I started working for Bob and made a lot of money. And what did I do? I went back to drinking and doing some drugs. And about a year later, I quit Bob and I went to work for one of our clients, a management consulting firm in Chicago. And one thing I've always had was work ethic. It was about an hour drive to the office. And if my boss was in the office at 6.30, I was in at 6. If he left at 7 at night, I left at 7.30. I was always in before Pete and I never left till he left. Very quickly, Within about a year, I'm the third highest paid guy in a $50 million a year um, multi-state management consulting firm and was making a ton of money. I got a new Harley. I got a custom Skeena boat. I got a new Jeep. 
but I'm the loneliest person in the world because, you know, every night I'm with myself, by myself, crying to myself, saying I can't stop drinking and doing cocaine. And I had uh, met my my wife, Shannon, at work, and she had a three-year-old son. And I can remember we went on a date, and I said, you know, I'd like to go out with you. And she said, I have one question to ask you. Do you do drugs? And I said, no. And I said, why would you ask me that? She said, well, I have a three-year-old son who's biological dad was a drug addict and abandoned him and I don't want anything to do with somebody that does drugs I said I don't do drugs she said great we'll go on another date well she went home to Naperville and I went to Chicago and bought a quarter ounce cocaine because everything that came out of my mouth was a lie um we started dating five months later I find out Shannon's pregnant so I thought I did what was the right thing I married Shannon and I adopted Nick and we had Max and nine months later she was pregnant with Tanner and Tanner came along and nine months after Tanner was born she was pregnant with Abby. So we have all these kids. My wife finally realized that she's living with the full-blown alcoholic and cocaine addict. <clears throat> so I went back to meetings and this time I got about 14 months sober but I never really got a sponsor. I never really worked the steps. I'm the guy that thought I could get sober through osmosis. I hang out with sober people, I'll get sober. <clears throat> I started another consulting firm actually with my old boss. We built a beautiful five bedroom house, three car garage in the suburbs. My neighbor and I are Cub Scout pack masters. We're managing 38 Cub Scout dens. Life was good. Then I met Joel. I met Joel uh, at a meeting, we're the same age, we knew some of the same people from 10 years prior. And about three weeks in, Joel asked me to take him to Chicago to move out of his apartment. Me being the people pleaser I am, I said, sure. So as we're moving him out of his apartment, his roommate Saba pops out of the bedroom. And he says, what are you, pardon me, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm moving out. Joel, what are you doing? He said, heroin, you want to do some? Sure. That quick. Wow. That quick. Now I'm 14 months clean and sober but I have no foundation for recovery because all I do is go to meetings. Right. I've never worked the steps. I, I don't know what a spiritual awakening is. And that was it for me. You know, I, I joke around and say, God, I wish I was just an alcoholic, which is horrific. But heroin took me to the depths of hell. Like I can't explain all morals values are out the window when it came to heroin. And I hid it from my wife for about a year. My drug dealer took me to the methadone clinic and said, Tim, I won't sell you drugs anymore. You're going to die. You need to get on methadone. I did that, told my wife. Then she started putting two and two together why I was getting sick every three or four weeks. And miraculously, I'm better because I was dope sick. I didn't have opiates and blah, blah, blah. About four months in, five months in, I got really angry on the methadone. And my wife said, you got to get off this. So I called Ray, my drug dealer. And he said, well, you got to get back on heroin. I said, get me some. I'm on the way down. And I went back to heroin. I tried the Suboxone. But the bottom line is I never wanted to be sober. Mm -hmm. What happened, though, I started getting consequences. Um, I got my second DUI, lost my license for three years, didn't drive. A week before I was to get my license back, I got my first driving on revoke. Now I lose my license for two more years. And the ironic thing is I was in Michigan. I drove to Michigan, was coming back early because I ran out of heroin. We're on a family vacation. 
and I got discombobulated and went the wrong way down California Avenue and ended up in Blue Island, Illinois. And I got pulled over by the chief of police off duty in his pickup truck for not using a turn signal. Three years ago, I was doing a speaking event to all these police chiefs of police. And there was the chief of police that gave me that driving on revoke. And he remembered me and we're friends today, but it's kind of ironic how all these things come come together. Well, after I got that, I I said, now I'm going to lose my license. I'm going to keep driving. Two weeks later, I got pulled over in Chicago by Officer White. And when I would go to buy drugs on the west side of Chicago, I'd wear a suit. I'd look really good. I'd carry AA literature with me. And he pulls me over. He says, what are you doing? I said, sir, I work for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm on a 12-step base call. And he looks at me, he says, no, you're not, you idiot. Nobody works for Alcoholics Anonymous. They're a volunteer-based program. You're going to buy heroin. I said, no, I'm not. Search me. And he did. <laughs> and he wrote me two tickets. And then he, uh, he looked at me. He said, I'm going to give you two bits of advice, Mr. Ryan. A, get yourself some help for your drug problem. And B, quit driving a car because you're going to go to prison. That got me 30 days in Cook County Jail. Six months later, I got pulled over in Plainfield, Illinois, going to buy heroin. Another 30 days in Will County Jail. And then two months later, I got pulled over in Chicago again in a different car in a different part of town by who? Officer White. Officer White. (laughs) And he pulled me over. He said, you look familiar. I told him. And he came up to the car. He said, Tim, I've got to take you. This is a felony. And that got me sentenced on July 25th of 2008. I could either do six months in Cook County Jail or take a year in prison, become a felon, but I'll be out in 61 days. I said, send me to prison. Um, So I got sentenced to a year in prison on my wife's birthday and uh, did 64 days, came back, um, started another executive search firm, went right back to drinking and using drugs, and made a lot of money, had an office in the Wrigley Building, Michigan Avenue, downtown Chicago, but my entire day revolved around drinking and doing heroin. I mean, I would supply homeless people with cell phones and give them 200 bucks each. There was two of them, Patch and Mike, and I said, if I ever call you, you need to bring me a jab of heroin, which is 14 bags, within a half an hour, and they always did because if my drug dealers weren't available, I needed my drugs. My whole life revolved around getting heroin, making money, supporting, and you know, I was there for my kids, but I wasn't. I mean, my son Max, who's 22 now, he would say, you know, I can remember Friday night movie night with dad, and I'd be like, hey, uh, what do you wanna watch, dad? And I'd be like, "Uh, let's watch Raiders of the Lost Ark. Dad, we just watched that last weekend. So I wouldn't remember things. And I love my kids more than anything in the world, but it's hard to love your kids when you can't love yourself. My wife and I really just coexisted in the house. Um, When I went to prison in 08 and got out, she had applied for a scholarship to go to nursing school and got a full ride. So she ended up graduating nursing school three years top of her class while working full time and taking care of the kids. Do you think I showed up to her graduation? No, I was dope sick. And I'll never forget her coming home and taking off her hat and throwing the flowers at her. Her mother bought her and said, I hate you, Tim Ryan. She said, you know, I was the only person at graduation whose spouse wasn't there. You know, that's where this takes you, though. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> 
December 16th of 2010, I drove one more time. I overdosed while driving. I hit two cars. I put four people in the hospital. Uh, I was clinically dead on the scene. Uh, took five shots of Narcan to bring me back. Five? I, five, yeah. Wow. And this was in 2010. Wow. Five, five shots. Um, you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727 314 Seven zero eight zero, And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I can remember coming to in the hospital and trying to run, and there's five Chicago cops, and I heard the nurse walk by, and she said, we've got to get blood and urine from them. And when she walked away, I looked at the cops. I said, get me out of here. Let's go. I don't have any insurance. I just wanted to get out of there because my delusional mind, I'm now in fear and panic mode. I'm like, they don't get blood or urine. I'll beat this. That's how sick I was, and I, I spent a week in jail. But here's the factor of where addiction takes you. <clears throat> This happened December 16th, so I got bailed out December 23rd. My mom put up the money to bail me out. My former wife, Shannon, picks me up. We drive home. There's not a word said. She had been waiting outside Cook County Jail 10 hours for me to walk out. We pulled into the garage, walked into my home office, and those famous words came out of my mouth, I'm sorry. And my wife said, Tim, you're sorried out. We'll talk in the morning. As she turned to walk away, said, Shannon, did you happen to go to the van? Because when I got in the accident, the airbag went off and I lost my glasses and I'm blind as a bat. She said, yeah, I went to the van. I got your glasses. They're on your desk. Your coat's in the closet. And as she turned to walk away, she said, oh, good job, Father of the Year. You do know all the kids' Christmas presents were hidden in the back of the van and half of them are missing. She left. I put on my glasses. I went to the closet. I opened up my coat pocket. There was all the heroin the cops never found. I went right back to use them because that's what drug addicts do. I can remember Christmas morning, the kids opening what gifts they had. And then I hopped a cab to Chicago and disappeared for two days to get more heroin. Monday, I went and retained the best lawyer. Um, I had some money put away and said, let's beat this. I said, they never got blood or urine. And 
My lawyer looked me dead in the eyes. He said, Tim, you're not beating anything. He said, this is your third DUI. It's aggravated. Um, there was injury. It's your fifth driving on revoke, and they found the spoon and syringe and charged you with possession of drugs. He said, you're going to prison. It's just a matter of how long. I got to a point to where I wanted to die. I wanted to kill myself, but I was afraid to hurt myself. I didn't, if there was a heaven or hell or purgatory, you know, I didn't want to rot there. So I just went deeper into my addiction. I started drinking heavily and using. Now my family knows what's going on. And about three months into fighting my case, I was taking a hot bath because I was out of heroin. I was dope sick and you're hot and you're cold. And my 17 year old son, Nick comes in the bathroom and he said, what's wrong pops. And with Nick, I was not a friend. I was a, I, I was a friend to Nick. I wasn't a father. Um, and Nick was who I adopted and I loved him unconditionally. I was adopted, but I never treated him like a son. I treated him like my best friend. And he said, what's wrong pops. I said, what do you think you idiot? I'm dope sick. And he said, not anymore, Dad. Today's your lucky day. And my son threw two bags of heroin on the bathroom counter. And I got out of the tub and I did them. And I felt good instantly. And I went to Nick's room and I said, Nick, what in the hell are you doing? And he said, don't worry, Dad. I'm just selling a little bit. I said, Nick, this isn't weed. I said, this is heroin. And you know what this drug has done to me. And my son looked me right in the eye and he said, well, Dad, you're a successful drug addict. And I said, why would you say that? And he said, well, we have a nice house. You have an office in the Wrigley building. You make a good living. So in Nick's delusional mind, because I functioned, he thought I was successful. Three months later, I caught him doing heroin and we started using heroin together. And that's how my son and I bonded. We became partners in crime. We lived to use and used to live. Um, October 30th of 2012, after 21 months, I went to court and I was sentenced to seven years in the Illinois Department of Corrections. And I can remember going to court that day. I knew they were going to take me and I got my drug dealer to meet me and I bought about 50, 60 bags of heroin. And I'm starting them in the cab. And this Polish lady cab driver is like, what are you doing? I'm like, just go to the courthouse. I'm going to prison. And I hid the rest of the bags in, uh, in my coat. I got sentenced to seven years and they pulled me in back and I had the, the guard there and I said, look, I need my lawyer and my coat. Um, I said, it's got my phone and wallet and I want to give them to my lawyer. So the dumb guard goes and gets my coat, and my lawyer, and they come back and I give my lawyer my wallet, my cell phone, and the CO says, give them your coat. I said, no, it's cold in the bullpens. I need my coat. He said, well, you're going to lose it. I said, I don't care. And as I was walking back into the holding cell, bags of heroin started falling on the ground. <laughs> and I was able to hide them and get them into Cook County Jail. But what I didn't realize is if I would have got caught bringing 50 bags of heroin into a penal institution, I think it carries 15 to 45 years. Wow. So, you know, call it God, somebody was watching out for me. And I got transferred to Northern Illinois Receiving Center right next to State Bill Prison where you're locked down 24 hours a day, seven days a week until they figure out what prison they're sending you to. I got really sick. I mean, when I walked in, I weighed 158 pounds. I was skin and bone. I was walking deaf. I'm six foot one, 210 today. Would you agree, honey? Maybe 212? This coronavirus, I'm putting on a little bit of weight. <laughs> I understand. Um, and my beautiful wife is in the room with me going, oh, I get to hear his story again. <laughs> um, but we do this for a living. 
I was so sick, I defecated and vomited myself for two weeks straight. I did not sleep a wink for a month. And about two weeks in, once I got over the throwing up, I just looked up and I I looked out of my cell door and it's just a hallway there and you can hear people screaming. And I said, God, higher power, whatever's out there, please take away this obsession and compulsion to use. And I swear I will turn my will and life over to you. And please let me get into Sheridan prison. The next day I was transferred to Sheridan prison in Illinois. There's 28 prisons at the time. There was Sheridan and Southwestern, two of them that had therapeutic drug treatment programs. And by the grace of God, I get into Sheridan and I got there and you do 30 days in a SAG building and 30 days in the orientation hall and you either stay on the big hallways or you get to one of the little buildings and back. And I got transferred to one of the little buildings and back where you want to go. And it was a very structured program. You had to wear these Smurf outfits and learn uh, all these poems and CBD group, CBT, uh, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy group, three hours a day, five days a week. And I got to the little building and I walk into my cell and there's this big black guy sitting on a bunk reading an AA big book. And I walk into my cell and I said, hey man, how you doing? He looks up at me and he goes, hey Whitey, you into recovery? I said, yeah, why? He said, because if not brother, you ain't coming in this blank cell. And uh, I said, I'm into recovery. And he looks at me and he says, well, I'm Big Perk. I said, hey, Big Perk, I'm Tim. And he looks at me again. He said, Tim, I think I'm going to call you Powder. I said, you can call me whatever you want. Big Perk was a <clears throat> gang chief for 25 years in Chicago. Wow. He was a ruthless man. Um, had spent over, uh, been to prison over 10 times. I think in his life, he had done 23 years behind the wall. He was not a good person. Um, did a lot of bad things, but to this day, this man is my best friend in the world, and that man helped save my life. Um, we are just talking about it the other day. <laughs> he said, Tim, God puts you in that cell with the reason for, for a reason for us to do what we do, but he said, I never thought in a million years some crazy white-ass cracker from the suburbs would be my best friend, and you know... <laughs> We had no TV. I never got a TV. We, 18 hours a day, we were in the cell. We studied the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the NA basic text, tried to read the Bible. We went through hundreds of, uh, read hundreds of books. We'd walk the yard. We'd have a meeting. We'd sit in the day room at night. We'd have a 12-step base meeting. We went through the steps. We talked. We shared. We cried together. Um, It was crazy. My Wife brought two of my kids to visit me every two weeks, and I watched the corn grow, get cut down, and grow again. My wife divorced me in prison. We lost our house in foreclosure, so her and the kids had to move 20 miles away to her mom's house. When I walked out of prison, it was December 16th of 2013. I ended up only having to do 13 and a half months because the way they ran the case, and I got good time for being in the therapeutic program. And when I walked out for the first time in my life, I was 13 and a half months clean and sober. Wow. My former wife, Shannon, picked me up and took me to get my dog, Cabo, my yellow lab, rest her soul. Had to see my dog first. And my mom had found, a, and Shannon had found a little townhouse in downtown Naperville, Illinois, about 30 miles southwest of Chicago. And I had a townhouse set up. Furniture was moved in. But the reason they found it 
was so I could walk to the Alamo Club to go to meetings. I could walk to the train to go to work. And I could walk downtown to go shopping. And my four kids came over that night. We all had dinner. And that's the last time I was together with my former wife and four kids as a family. Four days later, Ramsey, my parole agent, showed up. As soon as he left, I was at another 12-step base meeting. I got another sponsor who had 21 years sober. We went through the steps again. But what I did was I put recovery first with my relationship with God, and I never looked back. For two and a half years, I never missed a 12-step base meeting. Mm -hmm. I went back into the technology space for about three months. I didn't want to do it. I called my mom, borrowed some money set up a nonprofit called the Man and Recovery Foundation. Uh, we guide and direct indigent people into treatment. We've given away, in about five and a half years, over a million dollars. Um, we pay for people to get into long-term 12-step or Christian-based programs, pay for them to get into sober living. I've never taken a dollar. I've never taken a salary. We've never had any employees. I do it out of the kindness of my heart. Um, I stumbled into starting a bunch of family support groups where I had the parents come with the loved ones struggling at the same time. And if you come to my group, it's real talk. I met a gal out of prison and uh, she was newly sober, married, going through divorce. I started dating her and then I find out she's pregnant. And I'm like, Jesus, you know, I'm 45 years old at the time. I I don't need another child. And, and all of a sudden, this little beautiful girl, Mackenzie, comes along. And Mackenzie's now four and a half. And about four months into our, when Mackenzie was four months old, her mother had a I'm going to kill myself episode. So I got her into a, a mental health psychiatric program in Florida. And I needed a nanny, and my nanny was Big Perk, my cellmate from prison. Um, <laughs> yeah, but what had happened was I got put in a relationship where I was making money. I stumbled into working into treatment, but I was always felt I was held hostage because I had this child, and I had an individual that was always, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to do this. Um, faking things like this all the time, the drama, but I fell for it. And in the interim of all this happening, 19 months sober, so I'm out of prison, 34, 56, 70. See, I got to count on my fingers. Seven, I'm out of prison seven months. <clears throat> and my oldest son, Nicholas, was in treatment for the fifth or sixth time. And I remember going to see Nick in treatment. And he's like, Dad, you know, we used to get high together. He said, I see what you're doing. He said, Dad, I want to be a part of what you're doing. He said, think about this. A father and son team that used to get high together, speaking in high schools and going all over the country. And I'm like, God, Nick, I would love that. Please get sober. And he's like, don't worry, I will. He got out of treatment, got put back in jail, did 45 days in jail, got out, and... Uh, Seven days later, on August 1st of 2014, Shannon, my former wife, had called me and said, hey, Nick, overdose again. Get out of bed. I'm picking you up. It was six in the morning. Shannon picked me up. We shot to the hospital. I normally don't share this part of the story. Shannon is now a nurse, and she said, Tim, I, I can't. They said Nick's unresponsive, and I had my cell phone, an iPhone, and I plugged it into her charger in her car. And automatically, my music came up. 
And this song came up from a band called, um, why am I blanking on the band? Nikki Six's band, 6AM. Nikki Six was a former bassist of Motley Crue and a recovering heroin addict and started this band 6AM. And it's all recovery related songs. Well, the song that came up was called Courtesy Call. And it's about them finding somebody dead in a hotel room from a heroin overdose. So I unplugged the phone immediately and we shot to the hospital in silence. We ran into the emergency room. Tim and Shanna Ryan here to see our son, Nick. He overdosed and 30 seconds later, the chaplain walked out. I knew the cards were up. I knew my son was dead. Um, I can remember him taking us in back and the doctor trying to be, do you know your son had an issue? We're like, yeah, and he said he didn't make it. And I went in to identify Nick, and I'll never forget, you know, looking at my dead son. And his cold body had been out, been dead about four and a half, five hours, the aspirator in his mouth. And for a long time, I said I helped kill my own son. <clears throat> and I didn't. The disease of addiction did. Did Nick follow in my footsteps? Yes, but he knew what to do, and he made the choice to use again. And I carry his ashes in this necklace here. It's a cross. Wow. Um, I remember going back to tell his mother and she had a glimmer of hope and she saw in my eyes and I'll never forget that scream. And what I explained to people though, my next phone call was to my 12 step base sponsor and I was surrounded by people in recovery. And I went to a meeting that night and five days later, we had my son's memorial service and there was 800, 900 people there and 400, 500 were people in the 12 step base rooms. I didn't know three quarters of them, but they came to support me. And that's what this fellowship does for me. And my son's passing really laid the foundation for what I do today moving forward. And I worked in the treatment space and built centers and <clears throat> started speaking all over the country. And I wrote a book called From Dope to Hope. And I had a documentary on A&E called Dope Man. And now I'm on Barney and Company and Fox and Friends and a CNN and HLN and a guest of the State of the Union address and Nancy Grace and things were going really well, but I was stuck in this relationship that I was absolutely miserable in. And for some reason, I got married for 13 months. I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I had told my wife I wanted a divorce. About six months prior, I started looking at my career and I'm speaking in high schools and colleges and corporations, but what was happening to me is I'd have 14 or 18 or 30 year old females coming up to me and talking about all their trauma and all this. And I'm like, hold on, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. So in my mind, I knew I needed to partner with the female. So I started looking for someone to partner with. And I deserve to be happy in my life. You know, I'd been given and given and given to everybody else. And yeah, I'm doing these cool things, but inside I had a hole that was unlike no, no other. And the only time I was happy was when I was with my kids, Mackenzie, Abby, Max, or Tanny, Tanner. Um, outside of that, I was miserable. I love to speak and do that or helping people, but at home, I, I, it was not a good situation. So I found this lady who we'd been following each other on, on Facebook and social media for two, three years, and her name was Jennifer Jimenez. And 
she was a supermodel and an actress. And at the time she was 13 plus years sober and sober house and celebrity rehab. And so we started messaging and I said, Hey, you know, I'm going to be in Florida this weekend. I'd like to talk to you about some business. Let's grab breakfast, lunch, dinner. And she's like, great. So I flew to Florida. Well, I was only there three days for work and I didn't have time to get together with her. I blew her off. So a week later, I get this message from Jennifer on Instagram or something. Hey, jerk, thanks for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It was phenomenal. You're just like the rest of them. So we started talking on the phone, and we, we were talking, and, and I really liked everything she was saying, and I was talking business only. And I kept putting her off. Well, let me check my schedule. And she said, look, either put your money where your mouth is or don't waste my time because my time's valuable. And when she said that, I got on and I bought a flight to Florida that Friday. This is a Tuesday. Smart man. And I, I said, all right, Jennifer, um, I'll see you Friday. Check your text message. And I hung up. And she calls me back. She goes, did you just buy a plane ticket? I said, yeah, so you can pick me up at the airport this Friday. So I'm in the middle of a divorce. I fly down there to talk about business. I'm standing outside of Fort Lauderdale Airport and I see Jennifer pull up. She gets out of the car, gives me the biggest hug in the world. It's like we were connected instantly. I gave her a kiss. I knew right then and there I will spend the rest of my life with this lady. And it was the last thing I was looking for. And Jennifer (laughs) will say, I thought love at first sight was for you, for you and the movies, but not for me. And we've been together every day since then. My divorce was in the middle. That was over. Uh, we started traveling the country. Um, we came out to California. She had a place here. We're speaking all over the country, doing this. And then on New Year's Eve, my little four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Mackenzie, was here and Jennifer's mother, and we went to a justice of the peace and got married. Oh, and cool. at 51 years old, I have finally found true happiness. I know what my purpose in life is. And Jennifer and I, you know, we work in the treatment space. We're, we're kind of torn on what to do now because April, May, June were our busy months. We lost out on probably 35 speaking events, a ton of income, which is okay. Um, so now we're, and we had a couple TV shows in the work. So our entire lives as a countries and worlds got put on hold. What it's given us time to do is kind of reevaluate What do we want to do? What don't we want to do? Because we get to write our own story. And the best thing about Jennifer coming into my life outside of marrying a supermodel and an actress, not many people can say that. (laughs) What Jennifer has taught me is to learn to say no. Because when we, I've got two, I actually have three cell phones now because one's for our speaking, but my phones, I would never turn them off. And she's like, you do know you have a do not disturb but these families would just suck me and suck me and you got to do this. I don't have to do anything. I gave you the guidance and direction. And so I've learned to say, no, if you want my services, you can pay for them. If you want me to come do an intervention, you can pay for that because my services aren't free. Right. And that's, I, I gave away so much and now I've learned to say no. Um, and it's the best thing. She's gave me balance and boundaries in life. And we get to do this journey together. I get to do it with my best friend, my business partner, my wife, the love of my life. And we get to ride this recovery road together. And the best is yet to come. 
And that's kind of my story, and I'm sticking to it. Absolutely. Can I take you back just a little bit? Do because, whatever you like. Well, the I think I know when it was, but the reason why we called this podcast The Point of No Return is to really nail down that moment when and someone who is addicted says, I have to change my life, and I will change it. Yep. What was that moment for you? I think I know what it was. In the prison, in, 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 state, in Northern Illinois Receiving Center, two weeks in after just being dope sick and kicking out. I mean, I was kicking a, a gallon of vodka a day and five grams of heroin. It was hell on earth. Um, and about two weeks in, that was it. When I looked out the window into the hallway and said that prayer, removed this obsession and compulsion, I've never had a thought of drinking or using a drug since then. Not at all. That's totally been lifted. I I use a 12-step based program for my foundation to try to be a better person. And I don't care what people do. Do celebrate recovery. Do the Bible. Do 12 steps. Do Naranon. Do Families Anonymous. Do Refuge Recovery. I don't care what you do. But for me, it is a 100% abstinence-based program because I can't just smoke weed I can't just do this. I, I do drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. And so you can jump on me for that. But that was my moment in that prison cell. And, you know, uh, next week I will be seven and a half years sober. Congratulations. Uh, air. So I got a life. I, I, I didn't think I, I couldn't be sober five minutes, let alone five days. Seven and a half years. Come on, man. Congratulations. Not, yeah, thank you. So yeah. that, that was the point of no return for me. That's awesome. Can I ask you another question? Ask me whatever you want. I am absolutely an open book. What happened to your ear? So about 10 years ago, you got to realize where I lived in Oswego, Illinois at the time, I'd have to take a cab to the train and it was an hour train ride to Chicago and I'm really dope sick. So I hop the train, I take the milk cart to Chicago, I take the L track up to my drug dealer's house and I buy a bunch of heroin. I said, please let me shoot up here. He's like, no, you got to go down to my trap house. So I went down to his trap house and I shot up a big rig of heroin and I overdosed. And when I woke up, a rat was chewing my ear off. Oh, oh, okay. I'm only joking. I had skin cancer. It's a good story though. You are so bad. Oh, I should leave leave that in. I had, I actually, after Mackenzie was born, I went and got a vasectomy and my buddy was the surgeon. We grew up on the lake water skiing. I had a little ding on my ear and he said, I'll just take it off. And he did. And about three months later, he called me and he said, Hey Tim, I got the results and you need to get in immediately. You've got skin cancer. I got to take part of your ear off. So I've had that. I've had part of my face here and, but it's just, I grew up on a lake. It was baby oil, booze, and broad. So what do you expect? <laughs> okay. So you have a book yes. from, from Dope to Hope. Oh, good. Boom. Perfect. From and Dope to Hope. It's available on Amazon. Good. And you have, do you have a website if people want to, I mean, assuming at some point we're all going to be able to go out on the road oh, yeah. and do our uh, thing? Best website is timandjennifer.org. Timandjennifer.org. Okay, good. And when I get any information on Jen and I book, she's working on a book, how to contact us speaking. You know, we've got Facebook pages, Jennifer Jimenez on every social media platform. It's Tim Ryan, Dope to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, A Man in Recovery on Twitter. And 
we're very accessible. I'm very accessible. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for thank sharing you your so story. Much. Absolutely. It was truly an honor. And thank you for being the voice for the voiceless and getting people's messages out there. And I'll end with this about the book. I had a mom message me yesterday on Facebook and I'll get these Facebook messengers. And she said, you know, I had met you four years ago and her son's been in prison for three years, drug addict. And she said, I sent him all sorts of things. And she said, I sent him your book two months ago. I've never seen my son so excited, so on fire for life after reading your book, because he said, your stories are so similar. She said, he gets out in July, you know, is there any way he could contact you? Would you be willing to write my son a letter? I'm like, yes, I mean, his info. So I have a letter going out to him today. That's why I wrote this book is to give people hope. And, you know, whether you're in prison, a treatment program, a family that's lost a loved one, it's all in there. And if I can live my life today and do what I do, anybody else can. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And ride out this storm and we will see you guys soon. Absolutely. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed the interview with Tim Ryan. He has quite a story to tell and probably worse than a lot, maybe not as bad as some, but I always like to say when you hear some of the tragedy that other people have experienced, you hopefully can say, well, my story is not that bad, so I can recover and I can come back from that. He um, is quite the storyteller and quite a good speaker, and I hope that his story resonates with one or more of you who are listening today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And find us on YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and we will talk to you again next week where we will be interviewing Jen Jimenez, Jimenez, his wife. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. For more information on Narconon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcononojai.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.